0: My name is Jason Dubray, and this is the Shelf-Shedding Movie Show. Each week, I'm going to give away one movie from my physical movie collection. Please enjoy this week's episode. 3 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This week, my guest Tom Ratzlaff and I are going to take a look at six films in an episode called Page to Screen. So, all six of these movies came from some literature. As usual, what's going to happen is uh, Tom and I will give 60 points and spread them among the six films. Whichever movie has the lowest total at the end of the episode is the one I have to eliminate from my movie collection. Please enjoy this very special episode of the Shelf-Shedding Movie Show. This is episode three of the Shelf-Shedding Movie Show and I'm here with my great good friend Tom. Hi, Jason. So I kind of forced this show on you. I think <laughs> other people had choices, so I want to ask you why you chose this one. We were both English teachers, both drama teachers, and I thought it would be interesting to do a, a show on taking the idea of a from the page to the screen, I'm calling this episode. So taking literature, in some cases we're looking at nonfiction, in other cases fictional, uh, one play as well. that, yeah. uh, being turned into film so how did you feel about the list when I gave it to you I guess is a, is a better question
1: well, I thought it was a good list a thorough list honestly I've forgotten some of the things we chose not to do
0: yeah yeah I, I don't think we, but, we, we just sort of settled on this one it, may, maybe yeah, it I thought you it. about some other ideas but well there
1: are so many possibilities and right away of course you think of Shakespeare mm-hmm. so I think the fact that we chose Titus
0: instead of you know Hamlet which has been produced so many times on film. Titus Andronicus the play and the the film version um, Titus we're going to be looking at, which is quite an interesting reimagining of 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 the text. I hate to admit it, but I came to the film before I came to the play, uh, as, as sometimes happens for sure. I think I threw in To Kill a Mockingbird because over the years you've talked to me about how much you love the novel You've had some issues with the film. Then we, we watched, that, it was now a few months ago, we watched uh, To Kill a Mockingbird together. Yeah. Um, and maybe we both had kind of different ideas. When we review it, we'll talk about that. Yeah. What do you think is the key to creating a successful movie version of a work of literature? That's always a trick, isn't it? I mean, for one thing, the work of literature is so
1: long. Yes. So the film has to pick and choose. What's shown, of course. Sometimes you can show a lot more in a short time than you can get to by creating whole scenes. The visual nature of film helps you do that, and
0: sound, of but what, uh, like what, 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 when you've, when you've watched something, because that's the usual complaint is it's not as good as the book, uh, and I, I think we we could be talking about that a few times today. Uh, not, it's not as great as the source material. Um, some of the source material I'm familiar with, some I'm less familiar with. And you said the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we are looking at Hitchcock movie uh, Rebecca, uh, which I, I don't think either of us have read the, the original novel that's connected to. No. no. no I haven't. When you walk away and you have you, seen it, a movie, you're you're maybe you're still saying uh, the book was better, but I enjoyed it. What do you think that, uh, has been done to to make that possible? Well, hopefully a couple of things
1: one would be staying true to the general intent of the, the novel, you know, not rewriting the entire uh, uh, nature of the, the history of the book, you know, of, the, of the world within the book. Yeah. Um, except once in a long while when that's necessary, but we'll probably come back to that. As yes. As. Um, hopefully the film will manage to uh, also, particularly if the book is older, also bring the present time into it. I mean, if the book is still relevant, if it's, if it's universal, then the bulk of what's there should still fit. But we all know that times change, and sometimes recent events can be brought into the context of the story if the filmmaker can do it wisely without, without changing the characters, especially. Uh, if the characters are well-drawn, they're still true. No matter no no matter what time period we're talking about, but sometimes they try too hard to modernize it and they kind of change everything mm-hmm. about what the original story was really about. So for me, I, you know, I know that that film is a different medium, and I know that over time things can change, um, but if if a filmmaker does a great job of bringing the time of the original story together with the present time and saying something that's both true to the original material and true for our times, that to me is a great job of adapting a piece.
0: Alright, so I should probably go through the movies that we're going to be reviewing today. We're going to review Gary Sinise's uh, version of A Mice and Men. Then we're going to take a look at, as I mentioned, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. uh, um, Then Steve McQueen's uh, 12 Years a Slave, uh, a Best Picture winning film. Um, Then we're going to look at Robert Redford's A River Runs Through It. Uh, Then we're also going to uh, uh, take a look at Julie Taymor's Titus based
2: on Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. Uh, and then we'll wrap up with Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Rebecca. Tell me like you done before, about them other guys and about us. Guys like us, they don't got nobody in the world gives a hoot in hell about it. But not us, Stuart, tell about us now. Because? Because I got you. And I got you. I spend all my time telling you things and you forget them. I remember about the rabbit. In
0: 1992, I was just interested in seeing every movie that came out. I wasn't that concerned about what what it is. And it looked kind of interesting, uh, but it did look like a costume drama called Mice and Men. I noticed it at a higher rating than I would have expected. It looked like kind of a genteel PG type Mm -hmm. of movie. And I didn't see it in theaters. I rented it from a video store. Remember those? Oh, I remember them well. Yes, I, I spent a lot of time there and uh, I miss them and I hadn't read the novel and I found it a very very heartbreaking and emotional and satisfying experience watching this film. And Then I of course uh, a few years later in grade 10 read Of Mice and Men, mm-hmm. um, my English class. Loved it. I've incorporated it into my teaching but it was a little bit later on before I realized that there are great differences between this film version and the novel by uh, the great John Steinbeck. However, I think if I was to show any sort of version of Of Mice and Men, I would show this one, uh, despite the fact that uh, the beginning and the end um, have been changed quite significantly. But uh, what is uh, what are your thoughts about Gary Sinise uh, and his take of of Mice and Men. Well, I've I've been a fan of Sinise's work
1: ever since I first saw him. Mm -hmm. I think the first film I saw him acting, the first one I remember anyway, was Forrest Gump. Oh, so you saw him in that before before this? Before I realized who was doing this. okay. And before I saw this film, yeah. And of course his Lieutenant Dan is just brilliant.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's the only time he's been nominated for an Oscar was for playing Lieutenant Dan. Yeah, which is a shame. Um, cares about the characters, each and every one of the characters um, which is incredibly important. Uh, To backtrack into the plot here for those who have not read or seen of of Mice and Men, we we have these two men um, during the Great Depression who are wandering through California. Uh, Gary Sinise directs the film produces it but he also plays George Milton and George Milton is his companion is Lenny Small. Uh, names are significant in here because, as played by John Malkovich, um, Lenny Small is a giant. However, he is, uh, politically correct terms, but developmentally delayed. But, and he is basically a child in this giant man's body. He doesn't know his own strength. He's fascinated by soft, furry creatures rabbits, mice, puppy dogs, that kind of thing. And what what's happened, and we get the sense this has happened a lot, is that Lenny, not knowing his own strength, he has run into trouble in different places that they've worked. And George has taken him and they have to escape from a farm and then they, they end up going to uh, this other farm or some of the same patterns play out. But this time, the stakes are, are quite a bit uh, quite a bit higher. There's a whole series of characters. Uh, most prominent is the son of the owner, Curly. Curly has a wife, just known as Curly's wife, which is quite intentional by Steinbeck. Uh, but there is great danger because she is very flirtatious with the working men. In some ways, Lenny does not understand um, what that can lead to. George does and is very watchful of Lenny uh, and any connection that he might start to have with Curly's wife. Uh, we also encounter Candy, played by uh, the late great Ray Walston, mm-hmm. um, who is sweet like Candy. He's an, an older man and, uh, and he has this, this older dog as well and he's worked on this, uh, this ranch for quite a long time starts to work with these guys and, and think about uh, this idea of putting their money together and buying some land because that is the dream, that is the American dream that is a theme throughout. And also, uh, who else should I mention? Oh, yes. Very important character played by Joe Morden, who's another terrific actor. He's done a lot of theater as well. A character named Crooks who is a, a black man living on this, this ranch who's isolated. Uh, he's Crooks. He has a crooked back. And uh, there's an amazing scene. It's handled quite in, in quite a different way in the book. That was another big change, um, where Lenny doesn't see race at all. And and he just talks to Crooks, and Crooks is very defensive because uh, he knows that there's a lot of prejudice uh, directed towards him. So it's all of these kind of uh, downtrodden characters working on this ranch. We know that we're headed in kind of a dark place here. This is not a happy novel. I, I really like Malkovich. I've heard others not like his performance Uh, he um, sometimes it's the the voice he uses uses this kind of high-pitched child's voice which I I, we we've talked about this this film version over the years I know we we're both on board with Malkovich's performance absolutely some some people have called it showy, or uh, sometimes they say he's they don't believe that he's quite the giant that's described by Steinbeck. I'm not sure who that would be and how who you could get with the acting chops to be able to do that. Uh, it's certainly the flashier of the two performances between Malkovich and, and Sinise in there but I, I, I really really like the cast. I want to mention yeah. Sherilyn Finn yes. who uh, she got a lot of work in late 80s early 90s. She was involved with the Twin Peaks TV show as well. Yeah. She disappeared for a while. The good news is she's she shown up in The Odd things since then. Um, not in great roles, really, over the years. I, I like what she does as as Curly's wife in this yeah, film. Me too. Yeah. A couple of
1: the recent things I've seen her in um, are TV shows that just happened to be on when I walked into the room. Mm-hmm. But what I found interesting when I've watched a few minutes, because I recognized her and you know yeah. respect her work, she manages to do so much more in those passable television programs than anyone else. Her characters are, are above all else, interesting and, and precise. Yeah.
0: You know what this character is made of and what she's like. I, mean, I, I feel like she's one of a series of really attractive women um, at that time in Hollywood that uh, was not given a chance once they reached a certain age, right. which is part of the overall sexism of, of the movie industry. Uh, unless you're uh, a Cate Blanchett or uh, a Julianne Moore or somebody like that, who a name that will sell tickets or sell TV advertising yeah. just because the name is there. Through middle age, I mean, you kind of go from these ingenue roles to mother roles to grandmother roles. That has yeah. been the, the 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 history of things, and I I'm, I'm glad that it's changing a little bit. But uh, but yeah, for for years I was like, what happened? What happened to her probably nothing happened to her i just was not seeing her in um mainstream movies for whatever reason yeah yeah uh, I, I think we both both like it uh it's um i think it's a solid adaptation uh for 1992 audiences, it works, it works, I know it works with teenagers, because they still react. I mean, we've read, or in theory, we've read the novel, depends on what they've done at home, (laughs) Um, but there's still, and I still have this, this is what, what, I mean, to me, it means it's a great film, but also a great novel. I still hope that um, something changes at the end, that we're, um, that it goes a different direction, but in tragedy, it is, inevitable uh I, I spoilers alert right now um we we do often talk about uh some of these plot twists but um not really as much of a plot twist but uh lenny does get in trouble with curly's wife doesn't know his own strength we get a sense early on he's killed this mouse that he picked up he kills this puppy dog that he's given um which leads to this uh, scene which is really sweet then goes bad really really fast with Curly's wife and again not knowing his own strength uh, he tries to keep her quiet and he ends up murdering her well, George only knowing, not knowing his own strength it's also
1: not understanding well enough to to prevent the fear that builds up in him mm-hmm. which leads to his exaggerating. He, he's afraid and then she's afraid she starts
0: screaming yes. and he's trying to stop her from screaming and that's what leads to her death. And then Gary Sinise to George has a tough decision because this Curly is, is pretty much going to lynch Lenny. Yeah. Best case scenario, he gets caught. They prevent him from doing that, but he gets institutionalized, which for somebody like Lenny would be horrible. Particularly back in that time. At that time, yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. and so George decides that the, the best thing to do is to to kill him. Himself, and it's just a heartbreaking scene uh, no matter what because this is George's only friend. Where the deviation is uh, we we start off on a, a train at the beginning of the film and George is on the train and the whole thing is a flashback because at the end he's alone on the train. In the novel he does have a friend on the ranch and then they all show up and he's reassured there was nothing else that you could have done it's okay. Instead, Sinise's choice is to just get straight to the loneliness uh, that George now feels. He's now like every other person in this world that they encounter. They're, they're all lonely. The only two who were not lonely were, were George and Lenny. So it's a, it's a different choice. It's not true to the, the novel, but I don't know how you feel about, about those changes being in there. Well, I think before a person condemns the choice to change something,
1: think about whether the change works you know there's a difference between better and worse and just different Mm
2: -hmm. (coughs) and i think Sunise's choice works so at least for me
1: at the end i felt it's different but it's also worthwhile and it works and maybe in some ways it worked better for the audience in 1992 um partly maybe because by 1992 audiences weren't as uh, determined to see a happy ending.
0: Yeah, they were more accepting of endings that that aren't happy. Yeah, because it's not a the novel itself is not long. No, like it's it's a very short book. It does kind of leave the Slim character a little bit out there. This friendship that has developed um, between George and Slim this looks like another like another friend that he can have, but instead that just dangles there. Uh, I guess, but maybe we don't need everything tied up in a neat bow. No.
1: In the novel, at the end, the fact that uh, George does seem to be willing to pursue this this new friendship Mm -hmm. is also intermingled with what they're going to do. They're Mm -hmm. now going to go to town and get drunk. Yes. Which is kind of an empty existence. Yes. True. Yeah. But with Sinise's ending, the character manages to preserve the, uh, the result, the, the change that happens in George because of his relationship with Lenny. And let's face it, any of us who's, who's been in some kind of a relationship in which the other person is dependent, hmm. that means all parents, for example, yeah. uh, with their children, um, we are changed by them. And to suggest that we can just become something that doesn't include that anymore in our lives just become whoever it is everybody else is who hasn't had that experience is just not true Mm -hmm. so in a way I think maybe Steinbeck's novel missed something Steinbeck's ending I mean ending not the novel but something that that uh, Sinise's ending understands Mm
0: -hmm. anyway it's if you're looking for uh, a cheery film this is definitely not it. but it is an Mm -hmm. effective movie version of my cement well, worth checking out. Absolutely.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Peck. The world never seems as fresh and wonderful, as comforting and terrifying, as good and evil, as it does when seen through the eyes of a child. For a writer to capture that feeling is remarkable. and Perhaps that is why one book in the last few years has been so warmly embraced by tens of millions of people. To Kill a Mockingbird, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and just about every other award a book can win. And now, happily, To Kill a Mockingbird becomes a motion picture, and its memorable characters come vividly alive. That's Scout. Some people call her Jean Louise Finch, but she insists on Scout. And that's her brother, Jim, just a boy until the day he learns there is evil in the world. And Atticus Finch, the father, whose devotion to justice places him and his children in jeopardy. I've been appointed to defend Tom Robinson. Now that he's been charged, that's what I intend to do.
0: All right, what I've learned is that people love to kill a mockingbird. Uh, The question sometimes is, do you love the novel or do you love the film? I remember it was my favorite novel that I studied in high school. Now I go back to it. I think you know there, there are some challenges with the novel, but it is it is definitely a classic. And the film version, it is a classic film. I mistakenly thought it had won Best Picture of the year, but it came out the same year as Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, so it didn't win Best Picture, but it did win Best Actor for Gregory Peck. Before we watched this together, I think we were both thinking the same thing, that the film version concentrated so much on Atticus Finch. And the novel, Atticus is there, he's the father figure, but he's the supporting figure. It is from the children's point of view. In revisiting the film, I've changed my mind a little bit. I I, I do feel that there's enough with the children and the children's perspective uh, in the film, while there's still quite a bit cut out from the novel. That it, I think it does earn its its status as a classic film. I really, really enjoy Peck's performance. It is arguably his best film performance. Um, I also like him in a movie called uh, A Gentleman's Agreement. I also, and I, I, I liked him in um, the original version of Cape Fear as well. Yeah. Uh, he did a lot of war movies, and he was fine in those. Um, but uh, Peck was just he was a movie star he was a presence in the yes. film I'm not sure I was ever uh, unaware that I was watching Gregory Peck when Gregory Peck was in a movie but Atticus Finch was a great role for him at that particular time in his life so um, overall it's gonna be a very positive review of To Kill a Mockingbird um, but uh, where are you at with it well like you I After
1: watching it again, I have a better, more positive impression of the film than I remembered. I'm wondering whether that isn't part of the the whole Hollywood hype. Gregory Peck was a big name, Mm -hmm. and Gregory Peck won the award for Best Actor, Mm -hmm. so that's how they promoted the film, constantly. And I suppose there's a possibility that, because I remember we watched it when I was in, in high school, Uh, There's a possibility that my English teacher at the time focused an awful lot on Gregory Peck and the character of Atticus Finch. So that might have tainted my memory of of the film. I I remember thinking very, almost angrily that the film makes Atticus Finch the center of the story when in fact in the novel scout. Scout is the center of everything. And it has to be. Because when you, especially when you study the novel thoroughly, you start to look at the pieces and how they fit together. They don't fit together if Atticus Finch is the center of it. But they do, Scout is. And for me, that was a story worth telling. And the perspective of Scout was the way to tell it. Uh, My favorite novelist, Kurt Vonnegut, was famous for having characters, no matter what age, look at the world with relatively innocent eyes and see them from the perspective of someone who is childlike. And that's what made his novels work, but why? Because that made the stories accessible to all of us. And for those of us who had experienced a certain event that might be included in in his novel, it allowed us to take a fresh look at it. Uh, And when we watched To Kill a Mockingbird again, I realized that in large part, the film was trying to see everyone and everything from the perspective of Scout, which of course also made Atticus Fish the great hero because he was her dad. yes and he was in the community a great man.
0: and so and that at that age, her dad's her hero, yes, developmentally, that makes sense, daughter and father. and so the the basic idea is this is over a, a stretch of time where uh, Scout, who was very obviously a tomboy, uh, growing up um, in in Alabama in uh, I believe the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, but what happens is uh, there is a, a trial where a gentleman named Tom Robinson, a black man, is, is put up on trial for uh, raping a white woman. I think what was significant. It, it, it won an Academy Award for for writing as well. Uh, what's interesting, uh, the connection between the first two uh, movies we're talking about, both were written by, the uh, screenplays were written by Gordon Foote, yes. <laughs> actually, um, is that the word rape was in fact used. And I'm not positive that rape had been uh, used in a mainstream studio film before To Kill a Mocking and so, uh, Tom Robinson uh, is defended by Atticus Finch. She's asked to be the person to defend him, uh, and this town is pretty much totally against Tom Robinson, and believing this uh, Bob Ewell, uh, whose daughter is uh, the supposed victim. Scout and her brother, they, 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 they sneak in, Scout and Jim, they sneak into the courtroom and Watch uh, the trial. So, in the in the novel and somewhat in the film, too, we see the child's point of view of what Atticus is doing, but we don't see a lot of the ins and outs of uh, the strategy uh, and the and the approach uh, to the defense that's being used. They just see their father uh, uh, def- defending this this black man, and it's an obvious obvious case that he should be found not guilty. Yes. But the supposed jury of his peers, all being white and, uh, I might argue, racist uh, people, uh, convict him uh, of this crime. And uh, again, much like Of Mice and Men, goes into quite a tragic perspective. Somehow this feels lighter than Of Mice and Men because of the child's point of view. There's a lot of play uh, Mm -hmm. and the subplot being this um which is very familiar to anybody who grew up in on a street so there's always that one house where there's supposedly a ghost or some horrible person or they're outside of the mainstream of society this this boo radley who is Mm -hmm. supposedly this scary killer and these these kids are wanting kind of wanting to see him this this elusive neighbor and, uh, and this odd communication starts to happen supposedly with with Boo Bradley um, throughout that feels in a weird way kind of there's some scary scenes in there not scary by today's standards but I'm sure in you know in the 60s when it was released yeah um, and uh, just, just a terrific payoff of that subplot so uh, I, I don't know if we can call this a capital T tragedy but definitely the, the main trial part, which I think is a lot of what was focused on with the movie version, and is just a part of the novel, is is the deep tragedy in this in, in both pieces there, so Yeah.
1: You mentioned the film was made in the
0: sixties. that was kind of the
1: perfect time sixty yeah. two for both the novel and the 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 film because of all of the social change, mm-hmm. racism being focus of much of the social change and the fact that uh, the novel and the film are are both um, both dealing so extensively with racism mattered but also the fact that at the end of the novel and the film we are filled with a lot of optimism. There is. Scout is the hope for the future. Scout and her brother Jem being children they have definitely learned about how unjust their world is they both genuinely want to do something about it mm-hmm. and they both seem to have a sense of,
0: of what it is they could do emulate their father and do what you can to try to change things well and they also the point i think of the subplot is that they prejudged who uh boo radley is, yes and boo yes. radley at, in the climax, again, spoilers if you haven't read the novel or seen the movie, but uh, Boo Radley uh, saves um, the kids from an attack from uh, a, a drunk, racist, angry, vengeful Bob Yule. Yeah. Um, and he, he is definitely the villain of the piece. and it is, yeah. Yeah. In the movie version, a bit in the book, I feel like Atticus is he's almost like a saint you know and so yeah. that, i don't know if it's fair to criticize the film version in, in 1962 but the fact is that he he thinks or tries to think the best of everybody in his community and is disappointed when bad things happen so i think that might be my my only criticism again for 1962 we kind of needed those hero figures the civil rights movement was happening in 1962 john kennedy was still the president so there's a lot of hope um, that things were gonna change um, for the better so I understand that but I, I think maybe that's what we responded to initially is that Atticus becomes the star Gregory Peck yeah. is a star and it seems kind of flawless even when something is done which seems like a mistake it's explained away as, like, oh we're just thinking about this the wrong way Atticus is always right and Atticus is a human being and it's okay to have for your protagonist to have some flaws it is okay. It's necessary, mm-hmm. and well, we don't see a lot of flaws
1: in the novel. And,
0: and no, we don't see that in the source material. We certainly life.
1: don't see any in the in the, the film. Thinking back to the '60s, I think maybe that was a wise choice. I think so. Uh, I think both on the part of the it novel, was an there. issue film, I think, and that's
0: why yeah. Peck did. I think Peck chose issue-based films. Uh, Gentleman's Agreement is about uh clubs that wouldn't allow jewish members and uh how, how there's prejudice and how that was wrong so i i admire peck's politics and i yeah if the movie would have been as successful if somebody else had been the lead role i mean the way it is you get a name like that to get the movie made and uh and it was it, it was about something so i admire him yeah. for that yeah. I, I just feel like there's a little bit more grit, a little bit more character, a little bit more edge with Sinise's Of uh, Mice and Men, if, yes. we're, to, if we're to compare uh, the two. Um, yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird has a, a greater legacy, I think, than Sinise's Of Mice and Men. But To Kill a Mockingbird, the film, I think for its time,
1: was pretty successful.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: I think both, both of us had that problem with it focusing too much on Atticus. But I think that's partly Hollywood's fault. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sinise managed to find a way to adapt of Mice and Men that didn't distort the view because of his name,
0: the filmmakers
1: in the 60s. He,
0: he wasn't as big a name, certainly in yeah. 92. Uh, <clears throat> even Malkovich. Malkovich was known a bit more. But uh, th- these weren't movie stars. Peck was a movie star. and I think yeah. that's a little bit of the difference there. Um, like both of them, I'm glad that we're both in a better place with this film version. Yeah, me too. Um, of my cement, so I think it's just, comparing the two, it's just nitpicky things here and there. Yeah. But they're, they're both well worth watching.
2: I want to ask you what part of the country you come from. I originate from Canada. I guess where that is. Well, I know where Canada is. I've been there myself. Well traveled for a slave. Solomon Northup is an expert player on the violin. I was born a free man, lived with my family in New York. Be good for your mother. Until the day I was deceived. To Solomon. Kidnapped, sold into slavery. Well, boy, how you feel now? My name is Solomon Northup. I'm a free man. And you have no right whatsoever to detain me. You're no free man. You're nothing but a Georgia runaway. Went down to the river Jordan. And that servant that don't obey his lord shall be beaten with many stripes. That's scripture. The condition of your laborers It's all wrong. And my property. You say that with pride. I say it as fact. Speak! Man does how he pleases with his property. (laughs) You come here. I say come here! Days ago, I was with my family in my home you want to survive do and say as little as possible I don't want to survive
0: I want to live okay I'd like to uh give a plug to uh a mutual acquaintance of ours uh podcast his name is Larry Parsons uh he has a, a podcast called rank and review genre movies and uh uh He's the reason that I'm doing this, because he had me on as a guest, and I got kind of addicted to this podcast thing. Uh, Anyway, he has a saying that, you know, on any given day, depending on the mood you're in, that can affect how you view a film. And when 12 Years a Slave came out, I was pumped to see this in the movie theater. And I was expecting quite a bit from it. And then when I saw the movie, I was underwhelmed by it, if you can believe that. So it was nice to include it in this show because I was able to revisit it uh, in the comfort of my home, watch the Blu-ray, and I came in with, you know, I was not in favour of it winning Best Picture. It wasn't even on my top ten list, if you can believe it, for that particular year. And I was able to watch it and get a lot more out of it. And Maybe that's the power of the movie, that it... It is very rewatchable, and uh, I can kind of break down or focus on like different aspects of everything that went wrong with this true story. Uh, The story is about a man named Solomon Northup, who uh, was a free man and uh, and living in New York State, but got kidnapped and got sold into slavery and went through uh, hell and encountered people who were going through... Uh, an equal amount, in some cases even greater hell, through the slavery system before uh, the Civil War happened. He ended up writing this, writing his story, so he managed to survive, but he told the truth of what happened during that time. Um, And one of the interesting things about the story is the fact that he... He was told early on, "Don't let anybody know that you can read and write." Yeah, because it's yeah. it's it's dangerous. Somebody who is can read and write, an intellectual, is dangerous. If we look at all kinds of atrocities, the same was uh, said of uh, during the Holocaust. If there were Jewish people that were incredibly smart, then they were killed off first. It's it's a very powerful movie, and I'm, I'm glad I revisited. And uh, the Blu-ray I have looks looks amazing. Just looks amazing. Uh, each shot. You can see. I, I don't think I paid enough attention to how well directed this movie uh, is directed by, by Steve McQueen, um, who's uh, not the not the movie star uh, Steve no, McQueen, well. but uh, a, a very talented um, British uh, director. Is a, a black man. Um, who is pretty darn close to being the first uh, uh, first black man to win Best Director. He, he didn't win Best Director that year, but uh, the film won Best Picture. He was the producer of it. So, right. so I, I really like the performances, and I was able to settle into the story a little bit more. I, I have a couple qualms here and there uh, we'll get into, but what is uh, your opinion of 12 Years a Slave? Well, like you, I did have
1: high expectations that were set by the responses of, of other people who had seen the film. And I, I think the on. Toronto Film
0: Festival, it did incredibly well. Yes. And that set out a lot of awards hype yeah. early on. And uh,
1: I, I remember thinking, well, I mean, The Color Purple,
0: how yes. are we going to top that? Which is a brilliant film. I was also thinking of the miniseries Roots. Yeah, I, I didn't see. It. Oh, you didn't see Roots? No, okay. I didn't see Roots. Yeah. That
1: was yeah. back before the days when I got caught up in the world of technology. You know, I still used Rabbit Ear TV at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, not Rabbit Ear, but still. Um, but yeah, the, the Color Purple was certainly you know, a powerful film, and it, it yes. affected me quite a lot, and I was so impressed in so many ways. That meant that I went into 12 Years a Slave with very high expectations Uh and a little bit of uh, doubt as to whether it could match that. So this is really a credit to Steve McQueen. Within two minutes, I was completely absorbed in the film. And also credit to the performances. And uh, I think what affected me most early on was that whole idea of, of an educated black man being recaptured, so to speak, kidnapped mm-hmm. and having to uh, pretend as though he didn't understand, pretend as though he wasn't well read, uh, that, that really affected me for some reason and maybe it's because once we learn things uh, and especially if we become teachers, everything is about how important and powerful education is. To recognize it as dangerous was, was a, a bit of a surprise, not a surprise in general, but in terms of seeing this film. So I, that brought me in completely. And yeah. the, so, the direction, the, the way everything was
0: filmed, and certainly the performance. Okay. So, my, my last guest, Dan Boudet, we were, some of the movies we were talking about were pretty heavy. He talked about beautiful, horrible movies, it's beautifully shot. Yes. But what goes on is absolutely horrible. What what's interesting though about our our attitudes going into 12 years of slave when you think about it is how many war pictures are there about World War II? You know, and we aren't going like, well, I have high expectations because I saw Schindler's List or I have high expectations okay. because I saw Saving Private Ryan. That might be there too, but questioning like, oh, Okay, this should only exist if it's at that level. How many stories are there about, uh, about slavery and pre-Civil War, and then the Civil War itself? and So many that have not been explored yet, and hopefully we're going to get, get to a different place. I, I saw Harriet, about Harriet Tugman. Um, oh, yes. it's, it's a solid film. It's not as strong as Color Purple and 12 Years a Slave. But it is a story worth telling. And I just don't think enough uh, stories have been told. Certainly from um, a, a black perspective. Yeah. What, what's also kind of extraordinary about a lot of the acting in the movie is uh, these are American characters, but played by, uh, in many cases, British actors. Uh, Alright, so start off with the... Uh, I don't know why this is such a tough name to say, but Chiwetel uh, four. Um, play Solomon Northman, uh, and I don't think I fully appreciated what he did as an actor the first time. He he centers this film so well. He does. Other performances are a lot more uh, flashy and colorful. I, a comparison I have, because I keep mentioning Schindler's List, is Liam Neeson in Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. He wasn't as interesting as Ben Kingsley and Ray Fiennes uh, and, and some, of, some of those characters here, uh, but it is a, a strong central performance uh, in here, but he, he shares the screen so well. The actor who won, uh, won an Oscar here uh, is Lupita Luongo. She is a woman who is the favored slave of a sadistic slave owner and landowner played by Michael Fassbender um, and he will just show up and, uh, and, and rape her essentially whenever he wants uh, but he gives her favoritism she doesn't want the attention of this white man but there's nothing she can do she has absolutely no power and it, it destroys her and then there's one of the most shocking scenes in my view uh, was when she gets publicly whipped while she's naked yeah. by Fastbender. He's, he's horrible to everybody else except for her but it's a perceived betrayal on, on, on his part that she has uh, that she has made um, in, in trying to get away trying to escape um, it, it's a very very tough uh, scene to watch and it's well acted I'm not sure if it's the best performance in the movie there's Hers, yeah. I don't know what you think. Again, she's the the most victimized character, I I, I might argue. I mean, it's not good to compare the levels of victimization in this, but she is the most victimized character. She is, and and maybe because
1: of that, people paid more attention. Mm -hmm. But of course, her performance would not have been so successful. Had it not been for the likes of Fassbender, actors need each other's. Uh, An Ninja to of too. Because Eddie, he has certainly yes some of the most
0: emotional scenes because she has this the kind of the, the slave mask on as they all yeah. do. Yeah. You know when when the, the the master is around. Oh, they you know they have to pretend like they appreciate everything that is going on. Yeah. Because if they look at this guy sideways, you might die. There, there's a character who just dies from exhaustion. Right, right then and there, yeah. um, and so it, it would not it would not take much, but she she lets that mask go and is totally real with Solomon, and those are some really subtle, strong scenes as well. Need need the whole thing? Um, yeah, I'm I'm not suggesting that she didn't deserve an award for her performance.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it is very very strong and and compelling, but what I think especially Hollywood in general, misses, and many of the awards, is that uh, performances like that aren't possible without the ensemble. Mm-hmm. And so maybe their, their focus of performance awards should shift to more of an ensemble uh, view, well, because what makes each of their performances great is all of their performances collectively mm-hmm. They feed off each other. The, that's the, how we the, get there, and the director is part of that. But, but there's something something else that happens. Something.
0: The, the Screen Actors Guild Awards has an ensemble award, and that's yeah, that's okay. their big award. Uh, and that. uh, the Academy doesn't have an ensemble award. But the Academy Awards maybe it should. Uh, Definitely, it should. Uh, and Twelve Years a Slave did win the ensemble acting award, uh, yes. which makes sense. There, there's some other names to mention here. Paul Dano is the one of the the bosses. He's not the actual owner of, uh, of Solomon initially. The actual owner is Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch is so good in this movie. It was kind of before I was really recognizing him for Sherlock and some of these other things. Um, he can play an American quite convincingly. Mm-hmm. And he's another uh, British actor. Lupita Luongo is American. Um, but a lot of these other actors are, are British. What happens is Solomon has to be sold because Paul Dano is going to kill him uh, because he he disrespected he, Solomon lost his patience. yeah. Uh, he enough was enough. He lost his patience. There's this horrible scene where he's he's choking and if he could be kicked over, he would be hung right then and there. Yeah for hours and hours and hours and is eventually rescued cumberbatch is, is the most sympathetic slave owner in there yeah. question mark i don't know how i'm supposed to feel about this guy because when he he has a chance to buy this family and he he breaks up the family quite intentionally yet he's very nice to to solomon but he's still a slave owner the time it's like the questions about if we have Atticus Finch as a clan member in *To Kill a Mockingbird*, yeah. are we going to be uh, as, seeing him as as much as a, a hero as as an audience as much? But so that's where I'm questioning. Like in comparison to Michael Fassbender, yes, <laughs> much much better. This is you know I would rather work for him as a slave than than Fassbender yes, who absolutely. is psychopathic.
1: Yeah, when <laughs> when we look at these events in history it's easier for us to look back and see, uh, see all these slave owners as monsters and psychopathic mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly important that we be made to feel uncomfortable yes. and that's what Cumberbatch's character manages to accomplish we feel uncomfortable because we have to see him as a human being it's more of a gray that, area it, it is yeah. and that makes forces us to think about ourselves are there any little things obviously I don't own any slaves but are there any little things that I've ever done that that kind of perpetuate the racism? Resist- resist- that's dangerous mm-hmm. the othering you know? business yeah and when you look at how and why 12 Years a Slave is an important event not just an important film uh I think that's one of the reasons why. It's difficult to watch someone be evil and yet be relatable in some other way. Uh, So being forced to look at at, uh, ourselves a little more objectively. I found this refreshing in a movie even though it is difficult to watch. We need more of that sort of thing. Showing us to ourselves in the negative light, not just the positive light.
0: Yeah. Say one more positive thing, and then I want to get into some criticisms. uh, Is this time the performance that stuck with me was Michael Fassbender? To me, the guy's a chameleon. Uh, The last episode with uh, Dan Boudet reviewed Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And I I really like what he does as Steve Jobs. And it was in the same, um, same time frame. Uh, The Twelve Years a Slave uh, was released and this is a completely and totally different performance. And again, another strong British actor. And what I appreciate about him, about Fassbender, he's not afraid to put himself in really, really difficult and ugly roles. Uh, I'm a big fan of a performance he gave in a movie which was also directed by Steve McQueen before this called Shame, where he played a sex addict. And, you know, I'd, An actor who could be a movie star, who is willing to just uh, just get to the darkest places uh, in a role, is something I I admire. I think he's just just a terrific actor, Um, and in this case, I in in some way, even though he was the capital V villain in this piece, I did at points see the insecurity. And the humanity too. So I think this goes to Northup accurately capturing what was going on, observing everything and we see in the film he's, he's struggling to write all of this stuff down but not get caught yeah. uh, so he doesn't lose these thoughts and in some ways kind of lose who he was and uh, he was able to get out successfully uh, to criticisms and then you can tell me if they're fair or not. <laughs> When Brad Pitt shows up, he shows up as as this Canadian, and he's doing some work, and then he's the one who gets uh, hears Solomon's story. When when this man goes up north, and then he tells the authorities, the authorities come down and, and, and rescue Northa. I'm glad Brad Pitt; he lent his money and his name and helped get the movie made. I think uh, I found his performance a touch distracting. That might not be fair. I'm glad he's in it; it's fine, but I. At no point was I thinking this is anybody other than Brad Pitt. Versus some other times where I I, I am a Brad Pitt fan. Uh, the other piece, and it, I mean it's like real life, I guess. They, they managed to get Solomon out of there without a lot of trouble, to me. It just kind of works out. He runs into this guy, the guy tells the story and they show up and Solomon observes a lot of suffering. He does get he does get beaten, he gets treated horribly, he gets passed around. But it, I, I thought it was a little bit, it seemed a little bit too easy for him to get out of the slavery situation. I mean, he's lost so many years of his life with his family. We see that heartbreaking scene at the end where he reunites with his family and, and everything has, has changed and all this time has been lost. So he's, I don't want to downplay his suffering, but it seemed very, very easy to get him out of that situation. And that's maybe what I was having trouble with the first time I saw the film, was we, we kind of jumped over the climax to the resolution very quickly. Versus the beginning, it's horrifying, and the middle part is, to me, the meat of the film. That's where it is is strong, but the end feels a bit weaker than, uh, than the first two acts. I, I don't know. Could that partly be
1: someone saying, oh, this movie is... Going to be way too long. We need to shorten it, and then the question, "Where do you cut?" Yeah. becomes a big one. It could be uh, perhaps those people should watch the Irishman and realize a long movie can still be a great movie, mm-hmm. start to finish, and compelling stuff. But you to have to be
0: major. Martin Scorsese to get, uh, or Quentin Tarantino to get a, a longer a three hour film. Uh, yeah, yeah, happening. You know, unless you're working well out of the the Hollywood system. I don't know if part of the problem
1: uh, is the same as part of the problem with Brad Pitt's performance I do very vividly remember being jarred out of the the, uh, the illusion of the film by the thought that uh, well obviously this is this performance by Brad Pitt is the typical American view of the Canadian as the, opposed to being a Canadian yes, true. It, but more than the accent he's a one dimensional character. It is. And it's a positive one dimension, but it's still very simplistic. He's not um, flashy about it. I no. mean, he gives the. And when you'll like screen over, but. Wh- when you even superficially examine the Underground Railroad that existed mm-hmm. to get people to safety, um, it wasn't just Canadians for one thing, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, it was a very, very, very dangerous process. And I agree with you. It seemed too simple. And I wonder if it wasn't just because they didn't go extensively enough into the actual journey, the, the difficulties, the very near uh, disasters that could happen. Um, I'm not sure, but in part it could be that old American problem of not really paying attention
0: when any history looks at uh, other countries. But it is interesting to me that uh, this was mostly a, a British production, mm-hmm. British director, British actors. Uh, you have Pitt in there, um, and I mean it was Hollywood money. I uh, 20th Century Fox. Well, but, the but they, that but they, so there's yeah, that uh, removal. So you could tell the story, I think, in, in an honest way. But that was the only bit where I thought this, this just seems. Just seems way, way, way too easy. Anyway, I'm, I'm happy to have a more positive view of Twelve Years a Slave than when I first saw it. Um, and t- to me, it's the performances that really sell it. But I, I think it's it was a much more subtle job um, of directing from Steve McQueen than I was expecting because some of his yeah. other films have been quite in your face and shocking. Like I thought this would be the pen- penultimate over-the-top violent look at slavery and uh, it's restrained and it's mature. And, um, so the scenes that do include the violence are particularly... They're memorable because the it wasn't um, exploitative, I suppose. No. But I think people should check out 12 Years a Slave. It is a, a powerful movie experience. I agree.
2: It is often those we live with and love, the ones we care about the most, who elude us. Even now, when I look back on the Montana of my youth, I long to understand what happened there and why. Norm, what do you want to be when you grow up? Minister, I guess. What are you gonna be? First or fly fisherman? There's no such thing. Where is it? Hmm. My brother Paul and I grew up in a time when the land was still untouched. In Montana, there are three things we never laid for. Church, work, and fishing. It was a world of wonder and possibility. I'm in love with Jessie Burns. With all the fish in the river. I'm not like her. But it was a tough world too. You're picking your brother up too much, like me. Why is it the people who need the most help won't take it? I know how we can go down in history. I understand he's changed the spelling of our name. I want you to know I can help. Ignore! Ignore! Boys, what have you done? You are in debt up your damn neck. I'll be fine. Ignore!
0: Turn to another 1992 release and again I, I just got myself so excited about movies at this time uh, that I, I wanted to see everything particularly uh, what were viewed as Oscar bait films and uh, so I, I did eventually I think it, again it wasn't in theaters but it was in home video see uh, a river runs through it Robert Redford's film Redford's interesting as a director uh, the first giant movie star 60s and 70s. He directs one movie, a movie called Ordinary People, and he wins Best Director and Best Picture. I think some people, there's a bit of a backlash because the same year was uh, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, which is was often voted the best movie of the 1980s. And the fact it didn't win Best Picture and Scorsese didn't win Best Director, I think there's a little bit of a backlash. Well, a movie star actor comes in and one try defeats one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And again, it's the, the business of the awards. But if you take a look at Robert Redford's films that he's directed, he is uh, an amazing director. And A River Runs Through It to me is one of my favorites of, uh, of his, his many great works. I love Ordinary People as well. I kind of agree that Raging Bulls is a better film. But they were just two amazing movies that happened to be in the same calendar year. Yeah. Uh, and I also thought Redford did a nice job of directing um, Ordinary People. Uh, another uh, recommendation I'll talk about another day is, is Quiz Show. Quiz Show uh, was so well directed by Redford as well. I'm not sure when I first watched A River Runs Through It that I was at the, at the proper stage to appreciate everything that was going on. Being a teenage boy, you want like the action and the flashiness. This is not a flashy film. Um, it's, not a, it's not a film that drags in any way, shape, or form. But it does rely on uh, subtlety, silences, uh, a lot of symbolism. And it's, uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful film. Uh, it seems like we're saying that a lot. It's a beautiful film, but it is also a tragedy. Uh, quick plot it's about uh, two brothers and again this is uh, this is an autobiographical story and it's about two brothers that go in in different directions Uh, growing up in Montana in uh, uh, the late 19 teens and uh, the story goes into the 1920s Uh, the two brothers are played by Craig Schaefer and Brad Pitt Brad Pitt was really just emerging Um, he had been in uh, Thelma and Louise which got some attention in a a couple other uh, movies in 92 this was one of his most prominent roles I still don't think it made him a movie star there were a few films later on yeah Um, and then the the presence throughout the film uh, that I, I like to talk about is their father played by Tom Skerritt i go on the record and say this is Tom Skerritt's best film performance. Uh, there isn't as much for his character to do in the second act of the film, and in the third act he's kind of more in a position where he's reacting, but the tone of the film is set by uh, this performance where he plays a Presbyterian minister uh, who tries to guide these boys through life, and then they become their own people and make, uh, make different choices. So where'd you land on The River Runs Through It? I do not think it's one of Redford's greatest uh,
1: of his early early work. No. Still, it's not a terrible film. It is a lot of the things that you say it is. No, it doesn't drag. It does lull. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's made other films that are about stuff in the head as opposed to action Mm -hmm. that, that don't do that. I think it's too long and maybe because of its obsession with the idea of romantic poetry yes. and and of the, uh, the stillness and, and long-lasting nature of nature uh, I think it gets a bit lost in in wanting to hold those notes for too long
0: Okay yeah. I mean that's a fair yeah. point I, I think the source material and, and given what McLean who's telling the story of his life that he he became a uh, a teacher and focused on the romantic um, on romantic poetry. I think yeah. that's maybe why it's included as much as it is. But we do have some some scenes where uh, the where the Craig Schaefer character is is reciting poetry and then his father picks it up and then yeah. he picks it up and they that's kind of how they communicate and as part of their The relationship, yeah, it is. I think a cerebral relationship, but it's also a relationship of like the action is learning how to fly fish, Uh, and the whole piece is a metaphor for fly fishing. And I, I'm not sure again as when I was younger that I was as interested in watching a movie about fly fishing, (laughs) but I do have a brother, and I'm the older brother. Yeah, he's the younger brother, so I can relate to that relationship have always been able to relate to that relationship. Now, watching it, and watching and I just really focused on why that is significant. Why he chose to to focus so much of the film on that, and it, and it just it comes down to to me thinking about it. The two approaches that these young men, as they grow up, have towards fly fishing. Schaefer's character. Um, so Norman McClain's the, uh, the, the writer, right. uh, Norman, he, he follows the instructions of his father and continues that. And we, when we see the older version of, of Norman um, fly fishing at the end, he still follows the exact same yeah. pattern. Just in the straight and arrow, Brad Pitt playing the younger brother, Paul, what he does is he finds his own way. And it's often described as an art. He's an artist out there when he's fly fishing, and he finds his own way of, of doing this. And that's how the two boys approach their lives. And I think that um, it, it works effectively without screaming it out and spoon feeding the audience. And so I, I think it's rewatchable because the, the more I watch, the more I get out of it. Yet mm-hmm. it's I, I described *Of Mice and Men* as being it looks like a genteel film but yet it's quite a bit darker, and that's why it had whatever was parental accompaniment, 1480, yeah, yeah. when it came out, versus the PG-rated A River Runs Through It. There is a darkness under the surface of this film, but it's not it's not a dark film in any way. We're going to be talking about some dark films um, pretty soon. I mean, 12 Years a Slave is, is quite dark. Uh, Titus Antronicus is... It's probably the darkest of the list here but it it does uh, above the surface of this uh, Missoula Montana community there there is another side that we see where where Brad Pitt's character seems seems more comfortable so it sounds like you don't like the movie you like it enough but you don't like it necessarily as much as some of the other ones I I think that's fair yeah Um, what do you think about Skerritt's performance oh that is one of
1: his strongest performances if not the strongest. Yes, um, It's almost his casting in it is almost a cliche because so often he plays that that uh, idyllic version of the uh, uh, the old American way that is white and Protestant you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he does it well and he does it with with sensitivity creates a human being. No criticism of his his work here maybe a criticism of the story itself um, the, f- the film seems to uh, spend a lot of energy particularly early creating this idyllic image and then maybe not enough energy displaying its uh, cracks and its flaws
0: I mean yes we see the ugliness of the racism yeah, but Brad Pitt has just to describe that that uh, scene. Brad Pitt uh, has a Native American girlfriend, and and shows up at this kind of seedy bar. Uh, and at first they weren't going to admit her, but Pitt's character is so forceful that he you know elbows his way in, and they just act as themselves. But everybody around watches this. And, and is horrified that this woman is there. Uh, the The server won't ask her for her drink order. She has to force, you know, say, "I want a drink too." Um, yeah. So, so, like, you're right. It's it's kind of there. Right? It's it's there, and then it's left. Yeah. Yeah. And when it when it finally came,
1: I was glad, mm-hmm. uh, but then disappointed that it was left. That was true the first time I saw the film. and it was. Is true. It's true here. I,
0: again, well, is the it? character disappears. I, I think yeah, I can yeah. I can criticize the film for uh, rules for women, um, and I mean maybe that's not the main point. Um, another one of our mutual friends, Sage, uh, in the very first episode we reviewed *Stand By Me*, and she took great issue with the fact that there's pretty much no female representation in that film at all. Uh, but it is a, a, a movie about um, young boys growing up, much as, as this is. Um, but the, the women don't have a whole lot to do. Like, we, we, they are present. There are yeah. women in this movie, at least. The, the mother character, she kind of cooks for them. She looks hurt when Brad Pitt, as an adult, shows up for dinner, stays for five minutes and then runs out the door. And she has to react to some of the tragic elements in the third act, uh, but there isn't much of a character. And Brenda Blethyn no. plays uh, plays her. She's a, a terrific British act actor. I get a criticism of her performance: the the dialect kind of slipped in a few places there. Um, but the family is is meant to be Scottish, so mm. I, I can sort of accept that. Uh, but she's not given a whole lot to do. No, she isn't. No, one would think that.
1: That the boys would have been influenced by their mother as well, but she would not mm-hmm. just disappear. It just seems like
0: the the father has the influence.
1: Yeah, uh, and of course, in the general context of that family, he is the the uh, uh, Presbyterian minister. Mm-hmm. Of course, in that context, he's going to be the head of the household, and etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But it's still not very credible from the human point of view, that, that his relationship with his wife would be that, uh, that she would be that much of a nothing in, in the family
0: life, other than a cook. Yeah, she's, she's not, even though I do, unfortunately, I think that that is true yeah. in some families, particularly at that time. Well, I, I, but it, I, it, I just don't, I would have liked to see, maybe there was, some, there was something that was cut, just a little maybe, bit more yeah. from her. Uh, other characters. So I mentioned a Native American actor, and I think uh, Robert Redford has been a champion for Native American rights, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, big time. Yeah. Um, so uh, he he found this this actor and gave her an interesting role for a few scenes, but that character disappears. Yes, Like we can't leave her on the floor sure. in the floor in a jail at one point, and then yeah. nothing nothing from her again. Um, we have this prostitute who is a beauty queen who ends up mixed up in this this kind of subplot uh, which uh, which involves um, the other main female character is this love interest for the Craig Schaefer character for, for Norman meets this girl falls in love with her immediately at this dance uh, and she has this brother who's in California who shows up and tries to act like a big shot but has uh, enormous problems with alcoholism uh, among other things, and ends up, you know, having this, uh, this tryst with this, this local, uh, woman who's, she's kind of a colorful character, but again, it's, there isn't a whole lot for that character to do other than to get drunk and flirt with this guy. Uh, and it's, the, the girlfriend played by, uh, Emily Lloyd, uh, uh named Jesse Burns mm-hmm. is probably the most fleshed out of I the female so. characters, but still, just feels like it's, it's the girlfriend character Mm -hmm. leads into the wife character. Like she has this moment where she, you know, is upset at Norman, um, and with an incident with her brother. So they, she's driving him home and decides to drive on a, a railroad track to, you know, for this kind of, there's a whole series of these dangerous sequences that we come across here, but and again, there isn't a whole lot of payoff. She goes from being the girlfriend to the wife to the mother. Yeah. By the
1: end. Nothing more is done with it. No. And that's part of the problem with those other scenes about characters who are part of the underside of life mm. there. Uh, it's that underside of life that creates the tragedy yes. that motivates the story, and yet, instead of telling us that story it tells us this different story and, and says oh yes and by the way this happened isn't it terrible but you know, the, the the tragic flaw of romantic poetry is that it is romantic poetry and that seems to be the case with this movie it is romantic poetry mm-hmm. it's, visual it's trying poetry. to mention other things but it's romantic it, poetry it's a
0: beautiful film to look at on um, blu-ray oh, um it, it won the Academy Award for, for cinematography, which makes sense. Uh, the production design is, is, is top notch throughout. And uh, I, I felt Ridford's hand throughout. Yet yeah, I, I don't think anything about this is self indulgent or flashy. No. 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 I think there, there are opportunities in movies like this to get quite melodramatic. And it seems to avoid that. Even the, the, the tragic moment is not seen on screen. There, other filmmakers would have a temptation to, uh, again, into the spoilers, but there is a character who gets beaten to death, a major character at the end. But instead of showing that, we show the character having a great triumph. And then it's off screen that this beating happens. I, I feel like filmmakers now, to up the violence, up the interest, yeah wouldn't show the restraint that Redford did, as, as well as, uh, as the screenwriter Richard Friedenberg. Friedenberg was up for an Academy Award for adapted screenplay for the, the movie. Yeah, so I think I like it more than you do, but I, it's, I've watched it a few times now, and each time I like it more and more. And I'm, I'm just spotting some of the subtleties as, as far as the family. It makes sense. They did a nice job with, with with Schaefer and Pitt as brothers. That there's just this this nonverbal thing, this look that they can give each other and they know exactly what they're about. Uh, I like the fight scene that they have when both frustrated at each other and they, they come to blows because that's realistically what would happen happen in a family. Um, and it's over the stupidest thing. It, it's over something stupid as would happen the with a family. It's yeah, over the sandwich, but he's it also is connected to this stunt that Pitt's character uh, pulls there. Uh, yeah. I, I think I, I, I like all three actors. Craig Schaefer was a little bit of a bigger star, believe it or not, than Brad Pitt at the time. And his career has kind of disappeared. I mean, uh, he was in uh, Some Kind of Wonderful in the 80s. Uh, he was in this horror movie um, that I reviewed on uh, uh, Larry's show called Nightbreed. Um, and he uh, was in a football movie in the 90s called The Program. But, but really his, I think he got mixed in with, uh, there were a lot of actors who became a similar look at the same time. And he has, he centers the film in some ways, but he's not, as, he tries to be charismatic, but he's not as charismatic as Pitt is. And so you no. can see why Pitt became the movie star between the two guys throughout the film. But Pitt had the flashier role as well. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And I, we, we didn't necessarily know at that particular time that it was released that it might not be that big a stretch to have Pitt play a, a character who, who plays with danger and is mm-hmm. aggressive and bold. He, he's gone to that type of role a lot. He's very good at it and I don't think there's anything wrong with his performance, but Skerritt is the one to me that I, each time I kind of go to and think, you know, that's, that's the performance of the movie. So it's mostly screen writing stuff that I think you're talking about. That's well, yes, in, in general. Um, there are a few picky little
1: things. Mm-hmm. But if they, uh, even for a moment, jar you out of the rest of the film, then maybe they're, you know, jar you out of the illusion, mm-hmm. then maybe they're worth bringing up. Okay. Uh, and poss- quite possibly, this first example happened because of some decisions to cut footage. And somehow someone missed the fact that. Uh, when the first time he goes to the police station to pick up his his brother, who's yeah. drunk, drunk, um, he got into a fight. Yeah. yeah. The first time he pulls out his wallet to pay the police officer, who then tells him, "Uh oh, no. Uh, he does the police beat, so we don't we don't do that, which is fine. But a few lines later, the police." Officer makes reference to the many times before that you've been here to pick up your brother And for some reason that really jarred for me Because if that were true, then he wouldn't have pulled out his wallet. He would already would already know the story And it's I, I had to so go back to replay that. I missed,
0: I missed that. I missed that line. I, I thought what he was saying is th- this has been happening more and more often, so you need to watch this as a warning about something's going on with his brother. I didn't, I didn't but, interpret it that he's been, he's been there several times to bail him out of jail. But the words he uses are uh, make a reference to his having been there many times before mm-hmm. to pick up his brother. Because it, as far as this goes, this is shortly after Craig Schaefer's character's come back from six years at Dartmouth University and he's now seen the changes in his younger brother. Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought it, I, I, I didn't read the scene that this is something that's happened uh, a lot. But I, again, I'll replay the scene and, uh, and see if that's in fact what the line was. Because that totally uh, would take me out of the movie too if mm-hmm. I had picked up on it. The next one is uh, at the,
1: uh, the Sleazy nightclub mm-hmm. where Pitt's character brings his uh, his first Zero, girlfriend, his girlfriend, yeah, and um, there's a long shot of of the uh, dance floor, as the two of them. Are yes, nice. yeah. Well, the first thing that struck me, but I, but didn't really bother me, was that the dance floor is made of pavement, <laughs> which in itself is yeah. strange because they entered a supposed building to go into this club, but the longer shot of the dance floor. Clearly shows the orange painted lines of the parking lot.
0: Okay. And that just didn't. So that, that took you out of that. It, it did. It, it, yeah. So I think that you know, there could be there could be a flaw there. And yeah, I they, and again, if, I took it that it, they were going down to some sort of a basement or back room of what is. But why would? Because that it. Be it, it, it we're, this is during Prohibition, of course. True.
1: Um, so, so, so why so was that is a hidden? Paved? Hidden club. And why would it have orange painted lines? Mm -hmm. At the time, I don't know, but at the time I don't think they painted parking lot lines. No. If they did, I'm pretty sure they weren't that same orange color as has been used for the last, (laughs) how many decades? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, that was another little one at the yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the third one was just bizarre. While they're riding along the railway tracks, Yes driving over the Ties Mm -hmm. in this old, uh, what, late 20s? uh, It would be,
0: probably would be be older than
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Those vehicles had very, uh, many of them had solid rubber tires. There is absolutely no way that ride would have been, well, probably wouldn't even have been possible. But even if it were, Mm -hmm. it would have been the most jarring experience of their lives it seems instead smooth, they're shown it? to be on this road that's pretty smooth mm-hmm. you know maybe a, the odd little sway or something here and they have a conversation they wouldn't be able to have a conversation No, maybe, no it'd be their easy. Teeth
0: to keep their yeah. teeth from breaking together and I, watching, just I, so I, i'm not i'm not sure other than to give the girlfriend a little bit more character or show how she responds to uh The fact that her her brother has been returned from this disastrous fishing trip where he's sunburnt and all of that, and so she's not happy with him if this is some sort of strange revenge thing that she does uh, or to show how impulsive she is. But that I I maybe could have done without that sequence. Yeah. Yeah. I think they could have gone from she's driving him home to back to the house and and then it's important to have that encounter with Brad Pitt uh, that she has after that, but that, that whole business, uh, well, looks interesting, and it's you know I, I don't know if it's meant to parallel earlier in the movie when uh, when Pitt and Schaefer uh, go on this rather dangerous ride down this uh, waterfall or yeah, um, yeah. Uh, just to, to prove their masculinity if. If it's supposed to kind of parallel that and like he, he's connected to people that are have that kind of uh, impulsive quality but I, I'm not sure why it, why it's in there um, so it's probably something that could be skipped over and as you said there are giant flaws with it I mean it's, it seems like a cutesy scene that some people might enjoy just watching and not thinking about it but um, I agree with you this. So there, there is actually one more detail yep. that to me
1: isn't a picky little thing so much of this film is about fly fishing yes for the father and the two sons yes the fly fishing equipment is crucially important mm-hmm. to them yes why then after the unsuccessful trip with with uh, uh, Jesse's brother yeah why then when she drives um Garment home, is he without his gear. It's nowhere to be seen. And when they leave, I think, well, we can accept that maybe it's already in her car, except that he said he he stops, comes back to the door, knocks, and says, I need to ride home. Which would imply that 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 wasn't true. But then when she drops him off at home, again, no equipment. And given how crucial fly fishing Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. and to an extent the equipment that they use for it, given how crucial that is to the story, I just could not get my head around why on earth they missed that important detail.
0: See, I think I had an explanation, but I think it might still be something that was overlooked because my explanation is probably not adequate enough. What happened was they had the two cars, so he took the brother's car and drove the brother home back to the house so none of that equipment was in the brother's car. Brad Pitt went and drove the, um, the prostitute home mm-hmm. and I believe the equipment was in that car. What we don't see is when, when Pitt comes back with, with, with uh, their car them unloading the equipment yeah. but I think it's still possible it's in the other car. One way or another I think because of its crucial
1: importance to the story mm-hmm. somehow we should have not even had to ask the question. Okay. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, yeah, I think what Redford did before and after is better work, mm. and among the reasons why, the little details are yeah, The details so I feel are missing. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I, I don't normally. I think see we're different them. places. I feel like I'm apologizing for it a little bit, um, but for a professional film made by an Academy Award-winning director who is, in fact, a movie star himself. Yeah, those those mistakes add up. Yeah, and, and they're not, and that's not usually a problem you associate
1: with uh, Robert Redford. No, sloppy little details. No, you know, or sloppiness no. with details. Maybe some movies he's acted
0: in, but not a movie he's directed. Yeah.
2: Sacrifice his flesh. Victorious titus. Spare my firstborn son. Religiously, they ask a sacrifice. I'll find a day to massacre them all. Away with her. (laughs) forest walks wide and spacious from rape and villainy. This was thy daughter. He that wounded her hurt me more than had he killed me dead. Uh!
0: (laughs) This is an auditory medium, so it's not visual, so uh, we can't see the socks that I have, but I have Shakespeare socks on. I'm also wearing a Shakespeare shirt. It has a quote, not from Titus Andronicus, unfortunately, but from The Tempest, which is another fine play. Interestingly enough, that uh, Julie Taymor, who we are going to talk about, uh, it was a follow-up after this film. She did a version of The Tempest uh, and had Helen Mirren play a female Prospero mm-hmm. um, and I think it's kind of an underrated film. Titus I think could be underrated uh, too because it, it was a little bit forgotten about. 1999 was an absolutely amazing year for film and this movie came in at the very, very end of the film year and it was a very crowded field that year and it somewhat got forgotten about other than a, in a couple tech categories. But it's, it's a sprawling and bold vision for a very violent, visceral play by Shakespeare. The belief is that this was very early in Shakespeare's uh, career as a writer, and I uh, feel that there's some immaturity in the writing. Also uh, what was in vogue at that particular time were revenge tragedies, and this is a revenge tragedy within a revenge tragedy in many ways. So maybe you can help me out with a plot summary here, oh, because if, oh boy. there's so much going on, and <laughs> oh, we will is. not do it justice. But the basic idea is Titus Andronicus, uh, played by Anthony Hopkins, has come back from a successful battle uh, where he has defended Rome. Um, and, and so all of the decisions that he's made in battle have all been, obviously, uh, the right decisions. But then he makes several really enormous mistakes as soon as he gets back. The people, in many ways, want him to be the new emperor of Rome. But he refuses the post. And instead of going with the the man who his uh, daughter is in love with, Bassianus, played by uh, James Frey, instead of doing that, he makes a public declaration that it should be Sat- Saturnus Saturnus, uh, played by Alan Cumming. I have a history with Alan Cumming. My first, my first trip to New York City uh, was also in 1999, much earlier in that year. And I saw the 1998 revival of Cabaret and Alan Cumming was playing the MC. And to this day, it is the greatest performance I have ever seen live and so it's nice to see Alan coming in uh, in this film and then along with that is uh, this uh, little known actor named Jessica Lang, some people yeah. might have heard of yeah, um, have. Yeah. and she is a, a prisoner uh, Titus's prisoner brought back uh, from the battle and as punishment uh, her eldest son is killed by Titus. Titus could spare his life uh, and um, just going playing Tamora begs for this mercy, which Titus does not offer, which is another mistake argu- arguably that he makes because then he makes a full-on enemy. Tamara's the biggest mistake. Tamara has uh, two sons uh, uh, that survive as well. and there is a moor named uh, Aaron played by Hen- Harry Lennox uh matthew reese some people uh, might uh, know him from the tv show the americans um he plays one of the sons demetrius uh and then jonathan Reese myers um who some people might know from a tv show called the Tudors*, uh where he played henry VIII. uh he also might be known to some woody allen fans from a movie called uh, matchpoint anyway they are the sons and little does titus realize that when he makes that decision to have uh Alan Cumming's character be the new Emperor of Rome, that Cumming will release all of these prisoners. And then they are free. And then through another set of circumstances, uh, he takes Tamara as his wife after uh, an escape attempt happens. Initially, he wants to marry Titus' daughter. Um, and then Titus's sons try to rescue her from that situation, which makes Alan Cumming, uh, pretty mad. And then then what's put into place is a whole series of actions, Tamir, uh, Tamara is behind, Jessica Lang's character is behind, to get revenge on Titus by killing one family member after another. The character who gets uh, arguably the worst of this, and this is not necessarily just Tamara who's involved but she knows what's happening, but it's also uh, because of the Harry Lennox character's influence too. Uh, the two uh, remaining sons uh, are also very much attracted to Titus's daughter, Lavinia. Yeah, Lavinia. Uh, it's she's the character in here who every man is seems to be attracted to. So these two idiot sons are getting into fights over this, and yeah. the Harry Lennox character says, "Well, you can both have her. Take her out to the woods, uh, and separate her. And out in the woods, you can both rape her and." Um, then just get rid of of her. And it leads to uh, one of the most uh, vicious things in any Shakespearean play I've ever seen, which Julie Taymor then actually adds another layer to it. So not only does she get raped by the two guys, um, her tongue gets removed, which is also in the play. Her hands get removed. Uh, The choice that was made uh, visually in here as well Mm -hmm. is to take uh, two tree branches and put them in place of her hands, Which creates quite a, a, a shocking image. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm I'm rambling because there's a lot more to this plot for sure. There's probably um, too much too much too much to this plot, which might speak to the immaturity of right. Shakespeare's script. It is unlike anything you will ever see. I I might argue, other than yeah. the other than the length, I think you could show this to some people who don't really like Shakespeare but are very comfortable with Tarantino-esque violence, violence that, that kind of level of violence, or maybe horror movie fans as well. And they will get quite a bit out of this film version of Titus, I suspect. But it, I, it it's very imaginative and uh, very well directed. The subtlety I mentioned with Redford's direction of A River Runs Through It, there's no subtlety here. It is, uh, it is big, it is visual. Uh, maybe that will be good for some people. Uh, watching it this time. I think it might be over-directed, and then we have a script that's somewhat over written And so that may yeah. be a bit of a complication. Uh, the acting varies depending on performance to performance. And so I'm interested in your take on who you liked and who you didn't like in this. Anyway, that's me yeah. going on for a really long period of time. I want to hear your thoughts on 1999's Titus. I will first though I have to mention what's stated on your shirt. Yes. Hell
1: is empty and all the devils are here. Yes. And I think that's a good description of Titus. It's also interesting that your Shakespeare socks have this face both on top and underneath on the sole. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare, the two-faced guy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Quite appropriate. Yes. Anyway, Julie Tamar, your comment that, that perhaps at times it's over-directed. I think I'd agree with you. There are, one of the problems is that she's brought in a whole lot of interesting elements, but maybe it's it's too many, and so she only addresses certain of them in certain moments, and it's as though she's so eager to make this statement that that becomes as important in that scene as the story. Yes uh, for example, early in the film, uh, she has the, these formations of soldiers who have returned from war and a ceremony is going on and they essentially go through what could be described as dance theater. Yeah nothing wrong with that. in fact, it's it's a rather interesting it look is... at the whole ceremonial process used in, in many cultures that revolve around violence. Mm-hmm. But it it comes up now and then it comes up once more and then I think perhaps a third time. But otherwise it's not an element of anything else. Yeah, which sits there. Makes it feel like it's sitting there. Another uh, similar problem is with two or three different moments, uh, four or five, it's a long film, um, that are are, uh, reminiscent of comic books or graphic novels. And that's great, that's interesting. In fact, if one of the things she was trying to do was involve a, a whole other generation. That's an excellent way to do it. Unfortunately, when it's only certain specific moments at certain specific times, it starts to feel a little too, uh, too much like we've been invited to a, a buffet dinner. Random dishes, like a potluck. <laughs> you have, a, a, on the one hand, a wonderful uh, dish of an Asian salad, and on the other hand, a plate of farmer sausage.
0: <laughs> Which might please people like me, but they're not really compatible to me about this. By the way, I, I appreciate the food analogy considering the climax of uh, this play and, and film. Julie Tamar, I think the reason I when I first saw this, I, I was accepting of all of this dance is I know that she's been very much involved in musical theater. She was the one who made The Lion King on Broadway possible. Right. Um, and so she she does have a, a theater background. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I, I I believe this was originally a stage version of Titus mm-hmm. Andronicus that then was reimagined for the screen. But yeah, there, there are things I liked. Uh, this this play has been considered like the, from the mind of a maniac. It has been yep. criticized for that. So one thing she does that's kind of interesting to me is recognizing that the mind of the maniac. In the first scene is a young boy and the young boy has all of these toys and all of the toys uh, look exactly like the characters in the film and this kid just goes on a rage and just uh, smashes absolutely everything causing great destruction and even like a a fire bomb type of thing, and then a soldier rescues him, and then suddenly he's in an amphitheater, and that's when we get the entrance of our characters. Yeah, I, I, I'm i not sure the amphitheater worked for me, but the idea of the that what we're watching is a child playing and playing with all of these characters because everything that happens is so violent and so outrageous that I, and I know there's a certain degree of. Um, outrageous behavior in Shakespearean plays. They were never it's a mistake to criticize a Shakespearean play for being realistic because re- realism did not exist in theater yeah. at that time. It was very formulaic and this is a capital T tragedy but this also happens to be a uh, capital R rated film version. I mean the, it is yeah. unrestrained and we, we see the blood, we see the guts, we're, we're, we're treated to a suggestion that a baby is going to be hung at one point. We see uh, hands uh, chopped off, and uh, then the hand appears uh, next to a jar with severed heads. It it is violent from beginning to end. And then, at the very end, we see one of the most brutal scenes that you could possibly imagine, where major characters get killed, which is not unusual in Shakespeare. No, no. I think it's the only time that where some of them were served up in a meat pie uh, sure. and fed to the main characters. And in the case of this film, one of them killed with a spoon. Yes, a spoon is shoved down right down his throat. A yeah. Serving spoon. Yeah, pie. serving spoon. <laughs> Alan Cumming's character meets his demise that way. <clears throat> One of the things, though, and you can tell me if you see this as a problem or not, and you turn to me at one point, being uh, to some of the performances, Anthony Hopkins playing Titus Andronicus. Mm, yeah. There's this point when you think that Hopkins did something which was an homage or a, or a wink towards his Hannibal Lecter role, the role that really he's he's known for. I saw that throughout. Yeah. And then the yeah, fact he that is. he chops up... Uh, Tamara's remaining sons in an act of revenge, uh, cooks them up and serves them in a pie, much in the way Hannibal Lecter would. I think it proves to be a little bit of a problem. This wasn't something that was invented or based on Silence of the Lambs, but you have this actor who's known for playing Hannibal Lecter playing kind of a weird mix of Hannibal Lecter, but also, when he's feigning madness, a little bit of a King Lear. There are moments where I I see... uh, Hopkins as King Lear, one tragedy piles up after another in his life, and then and he starts barking and, 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 and raving. I wasn't sure if, like, Hopkins is always interesting, and he's one yeah. of the greatest loving yeah. actors, but I'm not sure that any of this was a stretch for him.
1: I've, I think he plays the role well. Of course, if it's a problem to cast him in this role, it's... Not his fault, and Titus is a ruthless, bloodthirsty mm-hmm. murderer. So, and, and yeah. the character does bake the sons in a pie. That is in like the all of that is there. Script. So, so is it fair that it's not fair to blame Anthony Hopkins for playing the role as it's written? But certain of the moments, I agree with you. Maybe go a little too, move a little too close to to Hannibal Lecter when he snaps. Uh, Snax, then he's very,
0: yeah. yeah that that gesture felt like he was doing some prep work for the Hannibal movie that came out two years yeah, after I that. that yeah I, and I did feel really know. weird criticizing anything with Anthony Hopkins I don't think there's there's much wrong with what he did if I was to come up with an acting note I think he goes a little bit theatrical in some places yeah. he'll start yelling and it's it's not motivated it's not built up but, but like, he's not the only one who does that no he's not alone uh, coen Fior does that Home Fjord, yeah. Several times. And less effectively,
1: I would say. And Tamor herself, as you mentioned, at times seems to be trying too hard to make something reminiscent of live theater, like that scene in the mm-hmm. amphitheater at the end.
0: Yeah, it's it just the shots of ordinary people watching the characters at the end, and I, I know she was trying to make some sort of a point. Here, I think it was too much. Like, yeah. Are we going to have the boy playing with the toys? Are we going to have the boy who turns out it's. Titus's grandson. Yes. Within Lucius the main Lucius. story, but at the end, and we have this really, really long shot of the boy taking the, the bastard child of, of Aaron, the Harry Lennox character, and and Jessica Lang right. um, out of this world as the sun rises, and it it, it just felt like too much. It would have been better good. to have the kid with all the toys there, having to clean up his room afterwards. Maybe, yeah. As as an Ending is a bookmark to what we see in the first scene, but well, I think I've watched this film four times now over the years, mm-hmm. and
1: I still feel the same way as I did the first time. There is too much going on, and I kind of find myself losing sight of what it is Tamoor really trying to say. There is a big danger with that, and here's what I think maybe part, partly she was going for the boy, Lucius, destroying the toys on the kitchen table and the food on the kitchen table yeah. in one massive food fight with his toy soldiers. Yes, That is pure violence for the sake of violence. It's a, it's a kind of lust. And the, the character who most clearly epitomizes that in the story is Aaron, who even at the end, instead of repenting all his sins before he mm-hmm. dies, repents the one good thing he did if, in fact, there was one good thing. Aaron's son is being carried off into the future by Lucius, the little boy who was most like Aaron at the beginning of the movie, uh, in destroying everything. Like he's learned. For me, that's trying way too hard. Well,
0: you're you're doing a lot of work there, but I think you are on to something. And
1: another possibility is that Tamar might have felt a little badly about the... uh, Uh, overt racism in the play itself yeah and so one way to to try to redeem that might be to have the two youngest left alive Lucius grandson of Titus and the baby uh, going off into the sunrise this time sunrise being a new world uh, and there's hopeful music playing and it feels Uh as though a new world is dawning in which this sort of Uh thing won't happen Again, if well, that's, that's the case, it's, of this it's trying way too hard. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's trying to make the
0: story into something else, just in case someone is critical. There's so much going on um, that I'm not sure I liked it as much as when I uh, initially saw it. Initially, I was just blown a bit, blown away with what she was doing, and I do agree. I think in her heart of hearts, she's trying to make Shakespeare visual and relevant. And so I think it's a noble attempt. My favorite performance in the film is Harry Lennox. Most of what he does is is more acting for for film. We're, we're being kind of harsh on it. It's quite watchable. Again, I, the attention spans with longer movies it would concern me a little bit because we're, we're going for pretty much the whole play here. But I think there's aspects in there that younger audiences could start to investigate Shakespeare based on, on what what she did with this
1: this film version. I almost wonder whether people who haven't experienced much Shakespeare would be turned off of Shakespeare because of this. Simply because the play itself tried to do too many different things. Yeah. So wasn't all that tightly focused. I mean Hamlet might be longer, but it's definitely more tightly focused. Uh, and also with Tamor adding all of these other things she seems to be wanting to do wanting to do with it. It just becomes too much. Yeah, it's, it's I, really well done, but is it worth I, watching? I guess for those who
0: are sensitive to violence, I would not recommend no. this at all, but I, I am somewhat thinking of certain types of teenage boys <laughs> might get more out of this than a slightly more traditional film version of a Shakespearean play. If you are a fan of Shakespeare or you know something about the play, it is definitely worth checking out Titus. But it is, uh, it has its flaws as well.
2: It does. I suppose she was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. No! Stop! <laughs> this isn't a doll you're in here. Well, is it?
1: she's bound to be insanely
2: jealous at first. She was resentful. literally. Why should she?
0: Don't you know? I should have thought Maxie would have told you. She simply adored Rebecca Now, there's this little-known filmmaker named Alfred Hitchcock. So, Alfred Hitchcock, and it's considered one of the great tragedies that he never won. Uh, Best Director. Oscar. But in fact he had an Academy Award winning film as far as the best picture. It wasn't The Birds. It wasn't Psycho. It wasn't Vertigo. But it was a 1941's Rebecca. Which was really really early uh, relatively speaking in his, his movie career. I don't think he made an uninteresting film in his career. He, much like a Martin Scorsese, always done something out of a, a Hitchcock film and Rebecca is no different. I haven't revisited Rebecca a whole lot. It's it's not one when you mention Alfred Hitchcock that comes to mind, but and and he may have been hired by the studio to direct the film, but I still feel his his touches are in there. He maybe didn't, he wasn't Alfred Hitchcock where he had all of that control, but I I, I feel his presence behind the camera in this film, which is based on a probably quite popular, at the time, novel, but uh, you could argue a fairly melodramatic (laughs) novel. Quick service to the plot. So we we have this girl played by Joan Fontaine, who is a traveling companion for a rather rich woman. And then she encounters uh, this very wealthy uh, widower played by Laurence Olivier and Maxine de Winter. And he makes the decision after they spent some time together to get remarried and to marry her and then bring her back to this uh, estate, Mandalay. And then she, this girl who is very like working class is overwhelmed with suddenly being the lady of this rather enormous mansion and having a staff wait on her and expect her to, to sort of take leadership throughout. The presence of the uh, deceased Mrs. DeWinter, Rebecca, is there, and most especially with Mrs. Danvers, who's kind of the head uh, mistress of the house. Mrs. Danvers is played by Judith Anderson. She's beyond obsessed with Rebecca, and that becomes more and more evident. I mentioned this is an Alfred Hitchcock movie, so nothing seems exactly as it appears as far as what... Has happened in the supposed saline accident where Rebecca has died, and uh, various uh, layers of the onion get revealed as uh, as we go deeper into the film. And there's a lot of plot twists uh, <laughs> that we deal with. And, third act I, I have this feeling I'm going to be defending this it, it might be back into our river runs through it" type of conversation here um, certainly it was a different time for making movies and we can sort of see that but the black and white works really well it, it only won two Academy Awards the one for black and white cinematography and best picture which is kind of an unusual pairing to me uh, two of the female actors really sell the movie for me uh, most especially Joan Fontaine, we we see the film through her eyes. She's just a really subtle, charming screen presence, and I I like a lot of the stuff that she does in this film. Despite the... it seems like a, like a quite a grounded performance, despite all of like the. Uh, exceptional melodramatic uh, things that she encounters throughout. The other one I like, and, and we maybe in a different place with this, is Judith Anderson playing Mrs. Danvers. You, you know that she is somewhat of a villain from the very first time we see her, how she's costumed and everything about her. But the the sequence where she she tours. Uh, Fontaine through Rebecca's room just remarkable screen acting and it, it's in her face and her physicality and everything uh, and it's it, it points like really creepy uh, somewhat frightening performance mm-hmm. from her so those are the pluses for me uh, I think if I was to criticize it, it it may have been better on the page than on the screen as far as the writing goes. But it was still, for the time, quite a successful film at 11 Oscar nominations. What's your take on it? You told me you were going to be fairly uh, fairly critical of this one. Yes.
1: Uh, Anderson's performance is fine, as you say. It's also not characteristic of some performances of the time. Uh And I mean that in a good way. Yes. Because... A lot of acting from that era was artificial in its melodramatic nature, um, particularly
0: from British
1: acting. True, of, of that time period. At yes, that time period,
0: yes. British acting of now is <laughs> is a different <laughs> different. A different kettle of fish completely. But yes. uh, at that time, I think British actors were used to stage. the stage. The idea of of the method uh, method acting uh, is not something that many British actors have ever been comfortable with particularly our lead Olivier who some argue it's between him and Marlon Brando was the greatest actors in the history of film I might debate that on both <laughs> fronts uh, but B2. one is a technical classically trained uh, Shakespearean actor mm-hmm. and the other was a deep method actor who maybe started to believe his own hype after a while and I, I saw I see problems with both yeah in there um, Olivier
1: at his best is is sincere and Yes. Um, and in this film, he seems kind of flat. I, I don't. He's less I, I yeah. Can't presume a reason, but it just feels like acting, not living. It, you know. It, so it seems you feel so like it, it would, wasn't
0: right. it, the character necessarily. Because sometimes I, I would find Olivier a bit big yeah, in some performances. This, this, this wasn't big. No. But in, I also didn't believe it. Exactly. You thought, like, kind of, um, and there's, like, this great confusion about whether he's in mourning or not, but we discover there's a lot more than that going on. You know, he's an attractive enough man, I guess, but, or it was just he led this exciting life, but there has to be some reason why the Fontaine character falls in love with him. I think it's just more she's this girl who hasn't seen much of the world and meets this kind of unique man and she falls for him it looks like harder than he falls for her yet later we kind of discovered no that's that's not completely accurate I, I think he thought he had to be kind of flat and cold and removed or maybe that's how he was directed I don't know no, knowing Olivier I think unless he directed himself he was not that open to other directors so I, I'm very curious yeah. about how he got along with Hitchcock true and, and you did mention this is one of Hitchcock's earlier films. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he, 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 he made his films defeated. for a long time at this yeah. point, but it was it was kind of the one... David O. Selznick was the producer, who was one of the great moguls in, in Hollywood. I think he ensured that this was a very, that top-notch production, and in, it must have been an important one for the studio at the time. Uh, so it, it felt a little bit... More polished than the the earlier Hitchcock movies I had yeah. I had yeah. watched. You mentioned Fontaine's performance. There were many many things I liked about it, mm-hmm. and
1: actually her character comes across as the most uh, the most credible. Yeah, I think so. But there are those certain moments, and I'm to me those moments, given how credible she seems, otherwise my must have been directed when she's so. Drastically over the top, melodramatic in a certain reaction, in a certain movement. I, for me, those really go a long way to spoil the film. I suspect they're Hitchcock's fault.
0: Are 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 you talking about some of those? The, the the shots where they would do a close-up in yes. looking off screen and yes. reacting and, yeah, and yeah and but the that music swell but there's so much of that era so i'm but not sure if we can yeah, fault her for uh, the style we yeah maybe you I, can and, fault yeah, hitchcock for that because that's a characteristic of hitchcock films that i've never liked oh you don't okay no. i do i do like I it i'm um, not saying I, I i'm
1: not saying that's always True all the time or that I don't that I can't stand anything by Hitchcock it's an element in a lot of Hitchcock films that I never liked So it kind of distracts movie. you I guess Yeah
0: I, I always thought I, I never took Hitchcock movies to be realistic they're, they're heavily stylized and very aware of the fans, Yeah. It, there's a point at which it's too much Yeah uh, One thing that I think was all Hitchcock was Laurence Olivier has a long monologue where he has to describe what happened Mm -hmm. to Rebecca and the camera follows what would have been Rebecca's movements. And it's so well set up, Mm -hmm. so beautifully blocked and photographed. I I think there's an argument why they won the Oscar for photography in that sequence. You see the promise of what would come in the uh, the decades after from his doctor. But that's not to say that Rebecca is not an interesting film. I I think the act, some of the performances are better than others, but the, the acting holds it together, and Hitchcock's visual style, I think, holds it together. three movies and (laughs) reviewing six. I hope you'll do this again too. Um, Sure, we'll find we'll find the next uh, show that you want to do. I'll give you a little bit more of a say. Yeah. Alright, start off we'll go in the order that we reviewed them. Uh, How many points are you awarding of Mice and Men? 20. 20 points. So, To Kill a Mockingbird. 15. 15 points for To Kill a Mockingbird. 12 Years a Slave. Also 15. So, so far you used 50 of the 60 points here. Yes. All right, then A River Runs Through It. Five. Five points for A River Runs Through It. Titus. Same, five. That's my 60, I believe. And you really, really don't like Rebecca, <laughs> Nope. So Rebecca receives zero points from you. Uh,
1: I have seen some films in the past, by the way, that I would give negative points to. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Rebecca gets zero means at least it's not nauseating. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've seen her
0: way, 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 than rebecca yes, so me too. Uh, yeah zero, <laughs> zero is a lot uh my points are a little bit more evenly distributed you might not yeah, be no. happy i'm giving 10 to a mice and men so that totals it up to 30 points i'm giving nine to to kill a mockingbird i'm giving nine to 12 years of slave i like a river runs through it a lot more than you do i gave it 12 points i gave six points to titus uh this is where we're going to disagree the most i gave 15 points to rebecca wow i think it's uh, I think it's a film made by one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, While it's a big story, perhaps overwrought, uh, I love most of the acting and uh, I, I found it just... Just interesting to see uh, earlier Hitchcock and what he could do uh, with a script that he perhaps was paid, a paid director for the studio for, for this film and um, he, he gave it a little bit more energy and a little bit more life than I think uh, one of the other countless directors whose names we don't remember um, now nearly 80 years later right so uh, I like it quite a bit more than you do what does that mean? What that means is uh, the movie that had the most points, not surprisingly, is Of Mice and Men. Your niece is Of Mice and Men. A tie for second with 24 points for To Kill a Mockingbird and 12 Years a Slave. A river runs through it, comes up with 17 points. Rebecca gets 15 points. And oddly enough, the movie that I must sacrifice now is Titus. I directed understand. by Julie Taymor, so that is the movie that has to leave my movie collection. It is uh, a DVD I bought in as soon as it came out. It's a uh, 2 desky DVD uh, special edition. So it's now up to you. That's a difficult one. Hmm. I, I would have had an answer for yeah. several of the others. Yeah, I got this one. Yeah, you didn't oh, expect this way. one to be the lowest, probably. No, I and, didn't. No, I didn't. Well, I suppose cool. I could add it to my own collection. And I think that would be a, a terrific idea because you are a Shakespeare fan. I am. I think you, you, you like this film, you're wanting to figure it out. It will have a good home. And I don't think it would be a good thing to
1: donate to schools. Mm,
0: probably. Because they probably mm, wouldn't use it anyway. Probably not. I'm happy to hand this over to you. Well, thank so you, you. are up. One DVD. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you have it, and if I long for it someday, maybe I'll just call you up and uh, we'll put it in the machine at your place. Absolutely. Yeah. now I can watch the special features that I didn't watch. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. There's a lot of them, so, yeah. Uh, again, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, until we next hear from you... Three of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I have now given Titus to my good friend Tom for safekeeping for the future uh I want to promote uh, my friend Larry Parsons show rank and review it's a terrific genre based movie podcast that uh, drops every two weeks and uh, if you have any feedback on the show please email me at shelf shedding movie at gmail.com or also uh, check out the shelf shedding movie show on Facebook and stay tuned I will hopefully have a website up fairly soon uh, until next time keep watching the movies. And I will keep talking about them.